right. Yosh? Paul? Ah, uh, fuck, not again. Jesus Christ. I could have sworn I did this yesterday. Fucking god damn it. Up, up, and... Alright. Alright. Alright, uh, that should be good to go after the next intro. I guess I'll see you in a second, folks. And this film is all about wanting to be in someone else's skin. It was the most piece of trash film. I'm like, oh, like what's the cost of freedom? Have you seen this? She's a fucking nut job. No, that, but that was the first half hour of the movie. Okay, that's what I wanted. And we are live. Hey guys, welcome to Dead Cinema Society Seven. If you're stumbling into our hollowed hallways, I welcome you. My name is Yosh, and we are Dead Cinema Society. Please allow me to introduce you to my friends here. We have Aaron Mann, a photographer, a film student, uh, a passionate actor and model. Aaron Mann, how you doing, my friend? What's going on, guys? My name is Aaron Mann, and this has been quite the Monroe weeks for me. Um, it's, uh, it's interesting. We're raining ash outside, and uh, it's raining ash inside my home as well with these films. Ooh. See what you did there. Yes, California is indeed on fire, and um, we are doing what all civilized human beings do during the apocalypse. Talk about movies. Paul Jackson is the next member of the society I would like to introduce everybody to. Paul is a stand-up human being, a wonderful gentleman. He is a writer an improv specialist, and a good pal. Paul, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing excellent, guys. It's good to see everybody's face. And, uh, yes, uh, what Aaron talked about, the, uh, oh, my God, these fires in California are crazy. But it's also great to just to relate to human beings. Uh, the other day I was leaving Ralph's, our grocery store here in Southern California. A woman approached me. And she was starting the conversation. I knew she was going to tell me a story. I said, what do you need? I just need some money to pay for a room. I go, how's $5? She goes, well, that's $4 more than I thought I'd get. I said, well, now you don't have to ask four more people for a dollar. And she was very happy and tearful, and it made me feel good. So, That's what it's all about, Paul Jackson. Thank you for doing that and leading the way. And, yes, we all must come together in these crazy times and be the brothers and sisters we're supposed to be. Chris Scovira is our technical advisor. He runs the show. He is our producer, and he is very fucking good at it. Chris, <laughs> I haven't seen you in a few days. You've been out having some fun. How you doing, man? I'm good. Uh, I was actually out at the beach yesterday. As our listeners can probably not see, that I got a lot of sun uh, because I mostly got sunburnt on my chest, and I am not going to show you it. But with the light of the sun comes wisdom, and I think that's what a lot of these movies are talking about. The lack of wisdom, the gaining of wisdom, and I'm happy to discuss them this month. 
Ah, very interesting. I'm very excited to get into that. Let's get our rundown on the screen if we haven't yet. We can. Um, my name is Yosh, and um, yeah, this show is called Dead Sin Society. Essentially what we do is we are curious individuals, the four of us, who are interested in the revitalization of cinema out from entertainment. So basically what we're doing is every two weeks we're watching three films, and we're having 20-minute-ish conversations about the themes and ideas propelled by the directors of these films. We will be personally ranking these films and then finding the mean average of our four personal rankings to solidify this film's position on our hierarchy of films on our website, deadcinemasociety.com. Follow us on Instagram, Dead Cinema Society, and go subscribe to our YouTube page, Dead Cinema Society. We're going to talk about three films today, and those three films are Vampire, directed by Carl Theodore Dreyer in 1932 in Germany, correct guys? Correct. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. The second film in discussion today will be Wages of Fear, a film that was brought into our catalog by none other than our very own Paul Jackson. Uh, this was directed by Henry Georges Closet, the Frenchman, in 1953. And our main event slot this evening will go to Charlie Kaufman's new film, which came out about seven days ago, I'm Thinking of Ending Things, uh, Kaufman's first film in association with Netflix. So, up first, we're going to talk a little bit about Vampire. Chris, whenever you're ready, let's get a little clip. Vampire. There we go. 1932. Carl Theodor Dreyer, Germany. All right, so Vampire tells the story of a young doctor, Mr. Alan Gray, who goes to a small rural town in Germany uh, on the behest of some kind of interesting folks. He is a studier of the supernatural and of the occult, and he goes into this small town uh, as he's been hearing strange things that's been happening on it, and quickly he is inducted into the, the town's gossip and the town's, you know, goings on as he encounters a lot of demonic activity and a lot of strange things. He endeavors to find out what's happening and he finds through a very weird notion that there is a vampire terroring, terrorizing the town, hence the name. Uh, then he goes with the townsfolk to seek to eradicate this plague and he does so through the use of an iron bar vampire. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much it. <laughs> I mean, it can't be any more simple than that. So, Okay. So we're going to go to our sponsor now, SwiftPolling.com. SwiftPolling.com, <laughs> the best place to vote on things with friends. Oh, SwiftPolling.com. That's SwiftPolling.com. Use our promo code. <laughs> no, there's no promo code. You, you like how I kill time with that sponsor? That was great. Okay. Oh, my God. So I guess we'll do the usual. We'll start with me, and then we'll go to Chris, and then Paul and Aaron, Sounds and we good. will keep the cycle rotating. So I guess I'm up first, and I will go in, and I will write my name, and I will write my score. Oh, we're doing that. All right. I like that better. My score for Vampire. 
the German classic from the 30s is a 6.9. So wait, am I up next, Ed? And don't forget, we cannot change our scores once a score has been seen, my friends. Well done, well done, Lance. Do not cheat. (laughs) Just because I don't like it doesn't mean you don't like it. I don't like it. <laughs> and right, don't do a six point, Chris. If you do a six point nine, everyone's gonna get mad at us. Yeah, right? what the hell? That's exactly what That's I'm thinking. Yeah. I mean, do not do a six point nine, Chris. Yeah. I'm, I'm is it is, put, is it me? I'm happy to put my score yes, on the you, screen before I upload. <laughs> it's a six point two. two. <laughs> okay, Aaron can rest easy. Oh my god. <laughs> I had Jay, hey, Aaron. I haven't seen Chris in a week, so there's no, there's definitely nothing going on. That's probably why your scores are different. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, Paul Jackson. Let's. Oh, pardon me. Oh, here we go. Let's see what the. Oh my god, that's funny. Seven point three. <laughs> okay. And uh, I am gonna throw a seven. Wow. Okay. Seven six from Aaron. Okay. Beautiful. This is uh, this oh, is great. Let's find out what the uh, mean average is here. And you guys can see the, the thing, the calculator. Nope. Not yet. Damn it. <laughs> almost, Chris. You'll get I it by. Usually, there. you have it by movie two. You usually get it all. Yeah. Yeah. It's only there's only three of them this time. So. <laughs> yeah. So you have limited chances now that we changed the show. <laughs> all right. So six point two. Plus. 6.9, 7.3, and a 7.6. That is a solid 7 for yeah, Vance. That's fair. That's right. That is a that's fair, fair score for yeah. that movie. That yeah. is a very fair score for that Variance movie. Variance of okay. Variance of okay. Good. Yeah, just over the good bar. Yeah. Is good? Is 7 good? Yeah, I don't even yeah. remember what I what we said about our, our yeah. tiers of scoring anymore, yeah. but 7 feels right. It seems like we're all relatively within the same uh, zone of, of ranking this film. Um, of course, it's a bit difficult. I think we're all going to probably appreciate some of the same things about it. Mm-hmm. But 1932, um, they obviously didn't record sound during the film, but added it afterwards. Um, what would you guys classify this as? Uh, experimental horror? Yeah, I think experimental horror. I think you're you're totally onto it if if um and i think this is uh this is a great starting point i because it's interesting i thought there was a stoker reference uh there really isn't this um this story borrows from a series of short stories by an irish writer i think got his name sheridan lefanu um and I'm sure it's a bit more Gaelic than that, but I figure for the uh, two or three Irish people who are watching right now, they'll, they'll afford me a little bit of room. And it's based on a... Uh... <laughs> no, Paul, that's wrong. No, no uh, you're not from... You're don't not pronounce the... You're from don't Dublin. pronounce it wrong. <laughs> you can't get Southern Dublin. Or, uh, Come on now, Paul. We are an extremely <laughs> oppressed people. You can at least get our, our, our well, work right. Potato family. Well, it's funny. He was potato very family. involved in, you know, for God. But uh, yeah, that's you're, you're spot on. This is experimental horror. Uh, you know, I understand the people. You know, our sort of our twentieth uh, and twenty first century horror directors have probably paid a little homage to this. There are some. Uh, I'll interject real quickly. Yes, the reason why it's in our catalog to begin with is because it's on none other than Guillermo del Toro's list of must-watch films, so that's how it got in there, because I do have great respect for that man. Carry on, Paul. Yeah, no, I think you're, you're spot on. This is, uh, this is experimental horror. It was based on 
uh, gothic horror story, I believe called Carmilla, um, that actually introduces lesbian uh, vampirism, which might have been really fun to explore back in the 1930s. But, uh, of course, that uh, was not explored here. Maybe it was intimated with the old woman at the beginning that she was maybe the vampire who would be lurking uh, through the rest of the story. But um, there were certainly no uh, love overtures between herself and the two sisters. So I figured uh, that wasn't the case. But, yeah, definitely experimental horror, uh, something where... um, I would be surprised if Aaron, given that he gave it a 7.6, you know, couldn't really key in on some of these uh, cinematographic moments that were really beautiful. Uh, <laughs> we all know that's and, why it scored high for Aaron. Exactly. Yeah. And, right, right uh, so. <laughs> and I, I don't need to put words in his mouth, so I'm sure. Uh, but yeah, well, you're exactly right. We'll certainly get to Aaron uh, on, on the cinematography of this film, which is why it ranked as high as it did for me as well. But Paul, while we still have you, Stoker, you referenced Stoker. That is the classic Dracula story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're sort of referencing how, you know, the Stoker's Dracula would have been a Dracula who's walking walking around with fangs, attacking mm-hmm. its victims. But this film, we didn't have a physical vampire. We sort of had, uh, what would you call it, an energy? Yeah, kind of an energy. Uh, you know, because the in supporting that, uh, I guess the use of light, the candle, the shadow, uh, any of it, because it was very atmospheric. So you kind of felt like there was this energy. Um, and then there was certainly power in these dream sequences. So whatever, you know, this this energy wasn't anthropomorphic. It was just something there that's represented the way that, uh, you know, Dreyer chose to move, you know, from scene to scene. So it was like, you know, you couldn't point to something and say that's what I'm accustomed to in a typical sort of vampire um Constant. So sort of a much more of a general sort of demonic presence in this mm-hmm. little town yeah. rather than a walking, talking vampire uh, an interesting, I, I mean, obviously, this, this is probably a rarity as far as how you depict a vampire goes. I don't think many people have done it this way. Um, so whatever this demonic force's intentions were, it, it would use sort of, I guess, one example of how it would enact upon its prey was using the quote-unquote shadows of men to do its killing for it. So, of course, we have that one scene where the soldier's shadow creeps in and kills the housekeeper and then sort of goes and, and rejoins the body without the body mm-hmm. really ever being aware of what its shadow was doing. Did I get that interpretation correct? I think you're right. I, I think you could probably thematically unify all three films. That These are movies we're going to be talking about, and I'm sure that's why this movie gained traction after it was critically panned. Uh, an audience pan back in the 30s, uh, just probably a misunderstanding of what was going on. But I think it's gotten traction because we're having these kinds of conversations. You know, is that is that what Dreyer meant by that use of shadow in that moment? And I, I certainly think it is, and because it certainly plays into an idea that this is this uh, non-anthropomorphic vampire energy force is, you know, permeating uh, evil everywhere. Is it too far-fetched to say that these sort of forces do do actually exist amongst us? For example, right now our world is in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. I mean, you could say that certain sinful behaviors are being promoted in our society. I mean, lust is rampant. This is not a new thing. This is throughout the history of human beings. There are sort of forces at play without getting too into religion. I mean, do you guys think that he was... do you think that he was trying to make a movie that was supposed to be, you know, this fantastical thing, or 
is he maybe commenting on 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 real life stuff and using vampire as a metaphor for say lust? I would say lust. I would say disease. Go ahead, Paul. No, no, I was gonna say yeah, like I, you know, um, I don't think yeah, like to your point initially, Chris. I don't know if there was like lust, but I, the idea that you know what theme is he trying to drive home? And um, to your point, Yoshi, and I think to Chris's point, so I won't uh, you know be too long here. Is just you know the disease, that disease element, something insidious that exists. Um, here among these characters and then uh, more broadly in society and how it's, you know, so infectious and, um, and obviously can lead to a death. Um, but yeah, it's a sinister force that, uh, you know, is definitely in our society, you know, Chris, hold your and, and certainly today. Chris, hold your thought. The reason I use lust as an example is mm -hmm. just because the, the, what does a vampire do? It sucks blood. And so, I mean, vampires as a whole, across the board could be a metaphor for lustful behavior, for the need to stay young, for the need to absorb other people's life energies so that you can selfishly be more powerful. Chris, what were you going to say? Well, I think, so traditionally, and I, I didn't want to jump in here to, to say you're wrong, but like traditionally in, in a vamp, vampiric story, it is not just about how the vampire gains power. There are a lot of dark forces at play when a vampire is present. So if you want to use the Bram Stoker Dracula idea, uh, in the surrounding areas surrounding his castle, there are he has control of wolves he can turn into mist and do certain things he can kind of read who's there and read their thoughts and a little history behind this this movie is technically the first uh vampire movie right is it it was delayed on purpose before bram Stoker's dracula the traditional universal studios it was delayed by like nine months so the movie was finished and then it just got shelved People think because of an influence from Hollywood, because they wanted to be first. They wanted to have wow. a, vamp a vampire film. And see, uh, that is a vampiric move by the studios. It, is. Right? Mm -hmm. it very much is. <laughs> On par for Hollywood. That's yeah. good information, Chris. So technically, this is the first vampire movie, but it was shoved aside because of Stoker's already established vampire mythology. Well, and also because of the American exceptionalism in early film. Because, like, you had these big, silent film stars coming out of America and, like, I mean, yeah, you had these great directors, these great cinematographers coming out of Europe, but, like, there wasn't an establishment that could fund and could, you know, throw money, basically, to get things stopped. So, like, the Americans were kind of the bully in this, and they won. Yeah, and it's interesting, because the irony is the the book from our Irish writer yeah. uh, came out, you know, I think 20 odd years before Bram Stoker's Dracula. I think it was mm -hmm. right before the, uh, the 1900s. And, and this, this story came out, I think in 1870, 1872, something like that. Did Stoker really sort of establish what a vampire was? I mean, it sounds like before that, maybe there were only these sort of Gaelic interpretations of this idea of a demonic force rather than an entity with things. Did Stoker invent that? He kind of conflated a lot of things together. So, like, the traditional form of a vampire, actually, there's, I can't remember it off the top of my head, but there is a, a kind of a pseudoscience where if you measured a person's skull and, like, certain kind of areas of the skull would tell you different things. And so, Soper goes into great detail of what, what Dracula should look like. And the most accurate depiction in film is actually Nosferatu. He has these long, spindly fingernails, this kind of like sloped head and a huge mustache. Like, and if you go back in the history, this study of like 
trying to see who could be crimin- like criminally, uh, you know, inclined, uh, where they'd measure your skull and everything. He fits that, like, that idea. And t- slight tangent, the, part of the reason why they weren't able to catch Jack the Ripper is because they were looking for a criminal. When they, they should have just been looking for a guy who was committing crimes. They were looking for someone who fit a description of a criminal. And Dracula is the embodiment of that. The embodiment of what a criminal is? What, a crim- what they thought a criminal looked like. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's so interesting to see through film and through books and, all, and pop culture how ideas can start in one sort of stage and, and, and people borrow ideas from other people and create their own versions of things. And now we see all these different interpretations of the idea of what a vampire is for, and, and people are just building off, off of other people's interpretations of that. Aaron, um, so remind me, 7.6 was it that you ranked, ranked this film? Yeah, I gave it a 7.6 um, just based off the cinematography. Great uh, shots. Yeah, I just put my mind in the uh, cinematographer's shoes and just kind of, I really watched this film from camera placement, you know, mm-hmm. where he was able to put this camera in 1932, and that was so innovative, you know inside the co- inside the coffin you know getting those shots outside of the the window while the co- while the coffin is uh, being taken out you know so you get to see this whole different perspective you're looking at the sky and the buildings passing by as if you're the person laying in the coffin you know and then the vice versa with the actor i mean he was a great actor he he didn't blink once you know he he was actually the um the producer of the film he had never acted before uh, he said, hey, I'll give you the fucking money, bro, but put me in the movie. Yeah. And, and so actually I think the only actor in the film was the woman who was uh, possessed by the vampire. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, yeah, so, yeah, great shots. Uh, that, again, that's why it ranked as high as it did for me. Sort of the limitations in my research, I, I, I learned that there was sort of limitations that Carl had to work with because of how small – the, the house that they were filming in was, and that actually led to some inventive maneuvers that he, that he did that he was the first to ever do. Another example, I think we've had one in the past, I'm having trouble recalling which film it was, but the example of limitations bringing out inventiveness. Um, and you could, I hate to always bring it to the pandemic, but we're all sort of limited right now, and, and that might be forcing us to do things differently and, and be inventive with the limitations we have. Um, yeah, there's one shot I'll bring up, or, or maybe it was two, where he did this a couple times where our, our main guy there entered a room, and then the camera would pan, and then you would see our character, and he'd be the first character you would see again, but he had come from behind the cinematographer, and then we find him on the other side of the room. From what I can tell, I think that was kind of the first time that's ever happened in my history. Yeah, that's yeah. Talk about more of the shots that you really appreciated, Aaron. Yeah, um, you know, it really felt a lot like the uh, that the haunted mansion. I don't know if you guys have been. Yes, in very much ride, so. You know, with the shadows on the wall and the dancing ghosts and the the floating wheels and just like this fantastical world, he got to explore through shadows. And I mean, how exciting is that? It's like you have all these limitations with like a lack of special effects or a lack of whatever. I mean, let's point a, a light at the wall and see what we can discover through shadows. And I mean, it's just, it's whimsical, it's haunting, it's, it really 
adds this element that there is a second world that we're kind of stumbling up upon, you know, which is exciting. It's like, I don't know, you know, this is so early on 1932 to be doing something like this. Did anybody what? get cartoon vibes from this? Sorry. Ish. No, it's okay. Cartoon vibes. Interesting. Yeah. Go on. Like it was very much. So we, we, we were watching, I don't remember when it was, but we were watching that cartoon where it was the, I think it was a dog and he goes into that haunted house and the skeletons kind of chase him around but you go through the house and there's like skulls in the walls and the skulls talk and try to bite him like it, it very much seemed like i mean the the kind of dip into the unknown as as campbell's would say would be the him walking outside and seeing the guy crossing the the lake or pond or whatever it was and then ringing the bell with the scythe that was he like we are now in the world of the unknown supernatural things are going to happen and it's like all right and i was i was there for it and like you got all those shadows you got all those like weirdo skulls on the walls and everything yeah yeah, I, yeah. it's like it's almost like they hit yeah because i'm trying to figure like what work he had to do for his audience like yeah. you know I'm, I'm i've got to keep leading them along uh, and yeah i think the comic book uh aspect is kind of fascinating and it may have been a device he chose to use but yeah i see what you're uh, i see what you're getting at there was that certainly was uh, in a way you know there's certainly an appreciation on my end as far as like thinking about the time this film was made and then being able to imagine myself making this movie right now and i was kind of picturing aaron and i even though aaron wasn't with me i was kind of picturing having a conversation with aaron about it i was just kind of thinking like yeah man like i don't want to rank this film too low because like we could you know, obviously our camera would be a little more steady now if we made this film, and, and, and we'd probably be able to record sound during the process, so maybe it'd be a little cleaner and a little crisper. But I could imagine us having a real good time making this movie right now and being really happy about what we came up with. So, so that's why there, there's respect there as far as him doing this in the 30s and, and having the cojones to do it and being as experimental as he was, very avant-garde kind of vibes with lots of the shots. The indoor shots were more crisp, and the outdoor shots certainly had some kind of filter over them, and it felt very dreamy. Yeah, how did I wanted to get into that. How do you think they, I don't know the technical aspects, how did they make him opaque? Yeah. How did they get that ghost vibe? Were they layering the films? Like yeah, some sort of, I would imagine some sort of filter that softens everything, yeah. But just on him, not the whole environment. The environment was solid. I certainly saw a lot of shots like with him walking through the woods where the, the trees almost felt like they were animated. It didn't even seem real. Yeah. But the indoor shots where he's opening things and he's definitely a ghost. You can see through him. Oh, right? I see what you're talking about. Like the yeah, shot how where did they opaque him. How did they? Shot, yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. There's a shot where he's sort of leaned over like this, and then he moves up. Mm -hmm. But yeah. that's when he sort of splits into two. Yeah, Let's we don't have that. editing. We we're piecing <laughs> together film. <laughs> yeah, frame by frame. <laughs> yeah, how many frames a second is this? Does anyone <laughs> know? Is it 24? Yeah. Okay, I was assuming it was less because there's so many uh, jumpy. You know, like when they're walking through the woods, suddenly they're well, really. Also, there's there's the history of this film. This film that we, I'm assuming everyone watched it on the Criterion Channel. Yeah. Yes. It is it is a amalgamation. So they took two film strips together and like had to piece it together because this film was shot in three different versions, because they had the English version, the French version, and the German version. And what we saw on Criterion was actually the remaining bits of the last bit of film between the French version and the German version. 
Wow. And that is the only thing that survived. What do you mean, like they shot it multiple times? Yes, so the actors were chosen because they could speak and or mouth those three languages. So when you were finished with the scene, you would redo the scene in another language. So you but there's no it. English version of the film. Not anymore. Ah. The original to... negatives are gone. Correct. That's what I read. In the, well, in the beginning of the film, it kind of breaks that down. Mm -hmm. It says, like, the original negatives are not to be found. Yes. Yeah, so um, okay. Yeah, I did notice after I watched the film that there was an, a, a, a um, Criterion version where they made it a little easier to read the subtitles because mm -hmm. I think we all probably watched the original version where the subtitles are over German text. Yeah. So it's a bit hard to kind of read. I don't think that really affected our viewing uh, pleasures too much. But um, let's talk. Let's try to let's try to figure this out because I think that maybe I ranked it a little low because I didn't really understand what he was trying to do here so so maybe that's on me but maybe we can try to figure it out for example why does he die why does suddenly the assistant innkeeper kind of take over the protagonist role and read the rest of the book uh to figure out how to find this woman vampire's grave and, and kill her and why does he split into two why does he become a ghost does any does anyone have any ideas I mean, that's the major criticism of the movie is that yeah. the plot doesn't yeah. make sense. The plot doesn't make totally. sense. Because the whole jumps around, doesn't really yeah. Yeah, put together. Well, I sort of made it a mission of mine to be a little nicer on this show. No! Which is, which is why things are going nice and, and soft right now. But I'm trying, to, I'm trying to challenge myself in these moments here because, yeah, it, it did feel like uh, it was sort of just like, ideas thrown together and I mean for example a big part of the film is just text helping us understand what's going on um, yeah I didn't really understand the splitting into two I didn't really understand how in the afterlife he was still a part of the solution go ahead Paul well I think I think there are some that believe that was a dream sequence that you know as he was giving blood he passed out and if I've got the sequence right and then now sees himself and realizes, am I now going over to exactly how we started this conversation, this sinister force? And then we have this perspective of, um, you know, him being carried away. And then he sees himself and then realizes, like, you know, we have to, um, what is happening next? And so I guess as a viewer, I too was wondering, what is happening next? <laughs> you know, where, where does it go from here? And um, I don't really have an answer, but it was, for me at least, that, that was more of a, less death more dream moment in the film for me. how did he die though like i don't think he died that's the cause whole thing. of death yeah. dream sequence well if he did, if he didn't he die then on the bench and he drifted away right yeah so possibly it was a dream sequence but i guess why it's hard to believe it was just a dream sequence is because we never really see him come back out of it typically if you're going to have your character fall asleep and have a dream sequence we're going to we're going to confirm that later on in the movie. I guess there wasn't the really... Is he the man in the coffin, too? What's that? Isn't he the man in the coffin that's being walked yeah. out? But I guess the idea is that that's part of the dream. I mean... Yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's confusing. I mean, also, like, we haven't even talked once about our Mark Twain-looking motherfucker who... Uh, the doctor. <laughs> the doctor. Yeah. The doctor. So, so the... Yeah, so the, the doctor was a servant of the vampire? Is that... Yeah. Presumably, yeah. Okay, but he's conscious because this, yeah. our soldier, who was a shadow puppet of a vampire, didn't seem conscious of his actions, whereas the doctor 
let's call him Mark Twain because I like that, mm-hmm. uh, seemed By the very. Way, Josh, you would play that character if we remade yeah. this movie. Oh, thanks Absolutely. very much. Absolutely. That's a huge compliment, bro. <laughs> we'll, we'll add a Dr. Van Helsing if you need it, you know, just to sort of make this. That dude's eyes. Better. Yeah. 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 That, I guess that guy was a journalist in real life, so also a non actor. Um, Great, great face though. Wow, that guy, oh. was, that was great. Um, so, so okay, let's try to explore that, and then we'll wrap it up because we're already over the time. But uh, he's a conscious uh, mm-hmm. servant of the vampire who ends up in some kind of mechanical basement locked behind fences, and I have no idea what any of that meant. I Chris, can explain that. And everything. He gets and he's being covered in flour or yes. something. So, in traditional, in traditional vampiric lore. You can either be a thrall or you can be a familiar. So a familiar is, if you're familiar with the Dracula story, that is Renfield. So you are, you're not brainwashed. You merely want to serve the vampire because they promise you everlasting life. They promise you power. They promise you whatever they want to promise you. Yep. And then there is the thrall who is forcibly put into the will of the vampire. So the, the soldier would be more of a thrall and the doctor mm-hmm. would be more of a familiar. Um, well, and, thank and, you for clarifying that. And then the end, sense. he gets locked in a flour mill. And so not only does he get crushed by the flour, he actually suffocates because you can't breathe in that because it's, it's flour. It's heavy. So he, the, the I wonder what the – oh, go ahead. No, I just wonder what the metaphorical purpose of that whole thing was. That it's above my head. But uh, <laughs> cool shots, though. Like that yeah, whole yeah. last mm-hmm. sequence was really cool, cutting yeah. back and forth to him being covered – um, and then it was going to them. <laughs> Every time I think of a scene, I'm like, "What did that mean?" Them on the on the boat. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Who are they looking for? <laughs> Who are they looking for? I don't know. Ah. <laughs> Hello. Hello. <laughs> I did think it was interesting that someone like him getting covered in the flower felt very similar to Wages of Fear, where they're like covered in the oil. Mm. I was like, how weird is it that we watch two movies where it's these intense scenes of being covered in something that's smothering you and killing you. Well, that's great foreshadowing for our next conversation, Chris. Let's get that clip up for Wages of Fear. Okie dokie. The final score, while Chris does that, for Vampire, the 1930s German experimental horror film, is a 7.0. The Wages of Fear, 1953, Henri-Georges Clouseau, France. Wages of Fear is a movie from the 50s that depicts, uh, once again, kind of, you had two of these in a month, of uh, foreigners stranded in a South American town looking for work down on their luck uh, when a new uh, foreigner comes into town by the name of Mr. Jo, who is a French (laughs) gangster, who they never really explain. He's running from some sort of persecution in France. Uh, and then tries to weasel his way into the town. However, he can't outweasel those who are already trying to weasel in the town. But when a oil der- derelict, derrick, when when an oil field catches fire, uh, the local American oil company sends 
two trucks with a ton of nitroglycerin. And because it's too dangerous for their company men to handle the, the journey, they seek to hire these expendable foreigners to go on the journey and face the wages of fear that wait them. All right, Yosh, so my ranking for wages of fear is an 8.3. Solid. An 8.3 from Chris. Jackson 7 Jackson. is going to... Oh, Jackson 7. There Jackson 7. 8.5. <laughs> the man himself. That's great. Aaron. Woo. And Yosh. See, controversial. Be controversial. Oh. 8.7. Bordering on masterpiece. It truly is. A, brav, yeah. a, a round of applause for that yeah. film. A round of applause. Very much so. Okay. Very much. Yeah. What a. 8.4. 8. 8.4. 8. It's a pretty good score. 8.4. Bam. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Paul, thank you for bringing this film into oh, the catalog. You're welcome. Um, I very much enjoyed it, and it's very good timing considering we watched The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Mm -hmm on our last show, and um, I will just open by saying that this is an adventure film. Yes. This is good. And I'm a little uh, surprised because Paul ranked uh, The Treasure at 9.2, and he only gave this one an 8.5. Aaron ranked Treasure at 8.5, and he gave this one a, what was it, an 8.0? Yeah, I like, I like Treasure better. Okay, so you both like Treasure yeah, better. Kind of like it a little better, yeah. I, it's funny. I knew you were going to bring it up, and I was like, oh, <laughs> you know, but I, but it, this is really for me. This is like that in that eight point four to eight point seven, um, and he does. He Clouseau, the director, does a lot of really fun and innovative things that have certainly influenced the remakes of this movie. Um, William Friedkin did uh, Sorcerer. An updated version of this, um, but yeah, like Aaron, I uh, there was something about the Treasure of the Sierra Madre that really grabbed me. And interestingly, when I was asked to pick a movie, I said, "All right, I've just watched the Treasure of the Sierra Madre. I remember when I first watched The Wages of Fear, how spellbound I was. Let me just let's try it for the following uh, our following session." And I was like, "You're going to get grilled about your ranking, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the Treasure of the Sierra Madre." But I. Uh, still sick by the treasure. It was good. But Wages of Fear, one of my all-time favorites, for sure. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, I mean, to each his own. I, I just felt like this film was so much more nuanced, so much more character development. There was just so much going on, so many ideas percolating in my head as to what it was about. I maybe understand that the treasure of the Sierra Madre is just more enjoyable, perhaps, to some people. Um, for me, like, even... I mean, Aaron really tooted home uh, the the acting in Treasure of Sierra Madre. I mean, the acting in this movie was unbelievable. I mean, oh. really, really good performances from people representing countries from all over the world. I mean, so many different countries at play here. Uh, our our main characters were respectively German, Italian, and French. Uh, two of them being French. Um, I want to open up by talking about the opening sequence. Actually, before I do that, Chris. Mm -hmm. let's, let's, finish, let's, let's finish this treasure versus wages comparison off. You and I both enjoyed this film much more, apparently. Uh, mm -hmm. what, 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 is your, what are your thoughts on, on the comparisons between the two? I, so Treasure of the Sierra Madre, for me, felt like a very kind of old-school Hollywood-like 
and then we're gonna we're gonna do this, and then they're gonna you know you can kind of see how it plays out. You can kind of map it on a on a map on a, or a screenplay. Yes. Uh, this I did not know what was gonna happen, yep. and the the idea that this was a pure and simple thriller about a truck really just resonated with me because like you really get into like the thought of movement and like what you can do and even the most like benign thing is going to hurt you in this world which really sold it for me i i haven't read this anywhere but i imagine polanski saw this film at some point in his life because the play of tension in this throughout this entire film is 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 unbelievable i mean there's nothing cheap about it there's no cheap shots but it's like there must have been 10 moments where when along the along the journey we were like oh this is when he gets blown up or this is yep. when he's going to die and then it just never happens to the point where that happens so many times where i was like wow he really just wants us to think that this is going to end badly for everyone but it's going to be a very happy ending and then of course just when i accept that uh, our friends Luigi and, and the German fellow blow uh, up. Bimba. <laughs> that moment, it's still every time I see oh. it, I forget it's coming, and it gets me every time. You're putting Unbelievable. a together, and just these moments of the wind, you're here one moment. And, and then a flash. Yeah, flash, gone. And how many times have we all said, oh, I'll see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, guys. I'll see you tomorrow. And then you get the tragic news. It's like, no. You're not going to see him tomorrow. It's just uh, the editing and pacing for that time. I mean, from the very jump, I felt like within the 30, first 30 minutes, I already knew the environment and the characters very well. It's like I had watched two hours of film, but mm -hmm. I was th 30 minutes in. Uh, the pacing of this film was was so impressive to me, and the editing, especially in that moment where, like you said, he's rolling the, rolling the doobie, and, and all we see is it blow away, and we have that second to think, like, what does that mean? What does that mean that it blew away? And then and the his... Flash. The yeah. flash too, because how are you gonna how are you gonna do explosions without CGI back then? And yeah. I couldn't imagine them doing it any better than they did. Yeah, no, it's it's remarkable. I mean, you see, it has. Uh, it's funny because uh, often we have these discussions, and then afterwards, I start to move off of numbers. You know, the effect you had Yoshi last week on me with "Gods Must Be Crazy," how you and Chris looked at it really moved me off. And I also realized that maybe I was in a place where. You know, given where we're at with BLM and some other things, maybe my head was in a different place. But I, the, when you opened this with this is an adventure, this truly is an adventure, I feel like I was a little kid uh, reading a comic book and I'm watching this play yes. out and it just felt like panels after panel after panel after panel. I was like, wow, this is great. What's next? And it just has everything in it. If you're looking for the leading man who's good looking, who's got his shirt off, it's like there's Yves Montan. And that image of him when you know, they're backing up on the makeshift ramp and then he's got to go down and check something and he leaps into the camera. And that moment, I've seen Clint Eastwood do that as Harry Callahan. I mean, it's just such a great moment. And it, it just, and, and then I think it's interesting because the point you just made, Yoshi, is maybe where, having seen it a few times, I was like, it maybe seemed plodding in the beginning, just the setup and maybe where, because once we are on that truck and we are moving towards the oral Derek, I am, it, it gets me every time. Small screen, big screen, I'm like, this is an adventure and I'm, it's a thrill ride, you know. Yeah, I, I, I want to say, like, the, the intro is really what drove this score down for me. I could not gain traction, my, <laughs> pun intended. I could not gain traction on the, the intro of this movie, and I wish it just had 
a different beginning. Um, oh man, I can I can fight you on that right now. I think. Okay, well, go. What about the intro? Did you not like? And then I'll tell you what I think is so genius about it. It was too long. I, it just was. It, when you're no. saying intro, clarify. Do you mean like introducing the characters, or do you literally mean the very first few shots? No, no, not the first few shots. Everything leading up to them getting in the truck, or actually, I like the meeting of them applying to be a truck driver. From that moment before, I was having trouble with the film. I, I, it just felt weird. There were all these like scenes with the girl. I, I assume she was a prostitute in the the restaurant. Uh, wow, Aaron. Wow. No, she was. She was. <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, I think it's not. It's I not mean, unfair for you to weird. assume that I mean, the way she's yeah. treated, the way women are treated in this film, is is rather disgusting. Like a sex slave to this guy, to this this yeah. owner. She was a slave. She okay. was certain, I mean, she wasn't really a slave, but she was treated like a slave, I would say. Yeah, I, just her acting and stuff felt over the top and just... Yes, the, very over the top. The, the, the scenes like... She's the they, wife of the director, by the way, so she might have been given a little leniency. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. unfortunate. She was a Yoko Ono in the... But, in the, but those eyes, yeah. those expressive eyes will play out later when we're all watching Diablo League, so they are very... Yeah, but I heard it took movie. about 100 takes to get those eyes, so... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, okay, also, like, in the uh, restaurant bar area, they have this confrontation scene, and that seemed very, like, overdone, and I'm like, what is this all about? So I was having trouble grasp grasping the meaning of this whole confrontation. Different languages, kind of like a gang feel, territorial, but I was like, why do we care about this? And then looking hindsight after the movie's over, I'm like, why did they start with all that? Like, it should have been a more intimate start to the movie with the two main characters, the um, the Vez. Mario and Joe? Yeah, Mario and Joe. I wanted like a more intimate start with them, but it seemed like they kept throwing in all these different, I don't know. It seemed to me like the, the story with Joe and Mario picked up relatively quickly. I mean, Joe came to town within the first 20 minutes of the film. I think that intro that you're referring to was used to establish the sort of general malaise of this town as a place where people end up when they are aimless or or have sort of or, or maybe are fleeing their past lives maybe because of criminal charges or what have you they've just for whatever reason ended up in the south american town where people go when they are aimless and can maybe survive very cheaply because at the core of their uh, beings, they're kind of uh, lazy or don't have responsibility. It seems like they're all just sort of there waiting for jobs to come to them, right? It, it, that's kind of the feeling I got. I, I thought they – I had the opposite impression of you. I, I felt like <clears throat> that the pacing was just so well done that I was into it from the jump. And uh, I understood what they were doing by, by sort of showing this cafe to be the the – where all this drama was going to unfold. Let me take you guys to the very opening shot, um, <clears throat> and then we can talk about that a little bit. The opening sequence is, uh, you know, in this dismal village where unemployed men are fighting for jobs, similar to John Huston's Treasure of the Sierra Madre, all the way down to the, the detail of visiting the local barber. I mean, there, there's a lot of similarities going on here. But the very first shots are... Um, the, the kid playing with the cockroaches. Mm -hmm. Did anyone pick up on that? I mean, that was yeah. really gross. 
The kid is poking, is prodding the cockroaches with a stick. I mean, first we only see the cockroaches being prodded. We don't know what the source is, and then we pull back to see it's just this little kid with his dick out, fucking hanging out, poking these cockroaches. Oh yeah. I thought of Aaron because I thought of El Topo, and I was like, oh, Aaron's gonna hate this movie. It's a naked kid. <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. I, did, I didn't mind it. I'm, I'm, I'm just playing. But the cockroaches are being prodded. And then we see this kid, and he starts to, I forget, it was ice cream or something passing him by, and he starts to maybe fantasize about buying the ice cream, but he can't. And then he goes to play with the cockroaches again, but a bird's gotten to, to the cockroaches. And so for me, I didn't place it right away, obviously, but in reflection and then reading about the film, I sort of realized that this is kind of a as-above-so-below fractal thing going on where we are all, I mean, maybe in the views of the pessimistic director who had... It was this movie was completely void of comedy, and and it had a very pessimistic ending, which we'll get to. But perhaps uh, this is our director saying like, we put so much drama and emphasis into into these lives when really we are just the playthings of some alien force that we cannot really comprehend. Just like a cockroach is the plaything of humans, and we are all really, when it comes down to it, cockroaches looking out for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. see, that's excellent, and that flew through me. I mean, I was just watching it and not interpreting it in the moment. Like, I love all that explanation, and I'm sure if I revisit, it'll have that impact. But as a first-time viewer, it felt like... Dragged on a bit. Yeah, it just was. it had no meaning to me. I had no connection to the guys until they had that, you know, entrance into, like, okay, who's going to drive? How are we, you know, all the guys are like tampering with who's driving and like throwing shirts and shit, trying to like mess them up. So, Aaron, you gave it an eight. So, I mean, what, what are some of the positives you took away from the film? I mean, clearly you liked it a bit, right? Oh, I mean the, oh, man, just the, the, the pit scene, the pit scene was oh. incredible. just the commitment as an actor. I mean, we're all actors here. Now put yourself in that place. You've got a tar pit. And we want you to fully commit. You're going to dive through this tar pit. You're going to get mud or whatever it was all it was over oil. you. Yeah, or oil. I don't know what they actually used for the film. But just the commitment to these shots and, like, I mean, they were just so in it. They were so into the seam of reality of this movie. And, like, that, those moments in there are just like, wow, this is amazing. This is, like really good cinematography this is good film yeah you're referring to um joe uh getting run over at this point our our main character mario yeah. is is so far gone much like humphrey bogart in treasure of the sierra madre or daniel day lewis in there will be blood we have a we have these four characters who have essentially valued them valued valued their lives at two thousand dollars by the way I mean, they are so desperate um, in this little town that they have valued their lives at $2,000. And eventually Mario uh, gets to the point where he's too far in to look back and he's willing to run over his best, his newest, bestest friend Joe's fellow countryman's leg uh, just to ensure that this quest is completed. Chris. What was your interpretation of the themes of this movie? What is our director, uh, excuse me, Henry Georges Clazon saying? 
I think it's just, I think it's exactly what you said. I think it's, it's the, the willingness of people to kind of go for what they want to do and what they deem as important. Like specifically in the pit scene, first of all, let's take, I want to take a step back. Like, I think it's the first time in, in this kind of area where, yeah, we see a character die, but we do not see the aftermath of that death. I was not expecting to go down into the crater they left. And they even commented on it. It's like, oh, it looks like they flew off. Yeah, because there's pieces of Luigi and, and <laughs> Rima everywhere around there. <laughs> like, they are done. Like, there was not even, like, wreckage. They were just vaporized. And I think it was just, I think that scene really kind of sold it for me. He was, he, like, literally, he told him, he goes, you're going to need to get out of the way. Because if I stop, we're not going to be able to get out. And he doesn't even make a choice. He doesn't stop. I mean, they, 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 the cut to the, the, the foot shows him just pushing it even more down. He does not care. And, like, he's not even phased when he gets – yeah, he's exhausted when he gets to the, the oil derrick. But, like, he's so happy to have his $4,000 because he, he gets his cut because they're all dead. Yeah. Well, I suppose I suppose we shouldn't hide hide from the audience what happens after that. At this point, let's let's go on. I mean, he gets his money, he gets his payout. We flash to the town, who are all celebrating. Uh, for some reason, they don't care about anyone's death, except but they're happy that Mario's coming back. Uh, as I, I guess they're assuming he's going to share his wealth, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, we get the ultra cynical ending of. Uh, the cutting back and forth between the town dancing to the song and Mario driving the truck left and right in celebration. And we all saw it coming, right? The windy road. And uh, like a fucking moron, he drives the truck off the cliff. And then we what just get, we get a it? classic fin. <laughs> fin. Yeah, that's it. Like, yeah, Life is meaningless. Uh, Life is uh, meaningless. I s- what does existentialism mean? Yeah, I yeah, don't no, give a shit. <laughs> Honestly, like if they were going to end the movie with him dying, I wanted him to sprint into the flames of the the you know the yeah. oil rig it's, going yeah, off because he started running towards it. And I was like, okay, it's going to end with him like a suicide. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, essentially. Yeah, but this this man was so far past. Uh, Caring about anything but himself. As and evidenced think, by the fact that he denied the chauffeur. They were yeah, willing I, to drive him back because you, you can sleep, man. Hey, and he's like, no, fuck you. I can take it. And then he's like, la, 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 la. And he drives off cliff. What does this mean on a, on a deeper level? Is it that no matter how much you try to control this thing, eventually you are going to die? Like Hubris. You're trying to control this vehicle and... Hey, it's- well, maybe it's perhaps, well, he wasn't controlling it. That's actually a great point, Aaron. I think you just nailed it on the head, maybe inadvertently, but he's driving left and right. He's not, he's driving recklessly and maybe life is the road and the truck is the meat vehicle that you're, that you're using to, the apparatus you're using to navigate the roads and, and his choice, instead of being responsible and staying in his lane is to live life on the edge and 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 not have any respect for for the world the road in this metaphor and to drive all over it and um and to be arrogant and cocky and and that is a one-way street off a cliff apparently yeah i'm yeah we, it, it, this is for an American audience, this is uh, this was the French equivalent of a Western. You know, you have people on this border town, and uh, uh, 
looking for opportunity and what does the opportunity look like? This is, they don't get a dress rehearsal. It's like, uh, you know, in the Western, it's like, well, <clears throat> I can contract you to go kill these bad men. Okay, great. I need you to protect this town from outlaws. Okay. Uh, they have no, they don't know what it's like. We get a, presumably, like you said earlier, you know, Charles Vanell's Joe character comes to town. He's what, a con man or he's in, you know, out of sorts with the law. Uh, he's here to escape that. What are the rest of them doing there? Is this the final frontier for a lot of them? They're not going to. They're not going to take the risk. But certainly, obviously, they had to audition to become truck drivers and passed. Had enough native skill to drive this truck. Had the courage to do this. Um, but again, it's what happens when they're doing it, and this is where they don't have, uh, you know, a comparative in their own lives. This, this is something wild and exciting, and it's. Uh, and it puts them and us, the viewer, on the edge. And I think it's, uh, you know, and then we get an ending like that where you're just like, yes, ultra cynical is well put. You know, yeah, I mean, go ahead, Aaron. Okay, I want to say something about the title of this, you know, The Wages of Fear. Mm -hmm. the, something I do love about this film is they really captured what that emotion is, that feeling of fear just looming, tension. I mean, you know, just in the, you know, the, the dock, not the dock, what is that? Like a wooden um, extension deck, I guess, that was yeah. holding the car. You know, just like the cables, and it's mm -hmm. just about to pop, and like you just feel that tension, and it's build, yeah. building. Yeah, I chose that scene. Even with the car, you know, rolling up the mud, like we get, <laughs> we get the shot of just the tire, oh, and it slips back, you know, and then... Uh, yeah, it's like these moments that just increase tension and tension. I mean, this was like a master class in how to build tension. You know, Simply. this is the ticking time bomb. Again. Yeah. Yeah, it seems to me that these characters, again, like had zero sort of respect for their lives. I mean, even the German talks about, he seemed to care more about his presentation in death than he did about just being alive. I mean, shaving and telling the story about how his dad used to, uh, what was it, he would shower uh, before, what before was it? his dad was hung, he, saw, he said, son, yes. shower. So, so to be presentable and respectable in death. But yet, here he is so quickly being willing to blow up this rock uh, and being willing to potentially die in, in that moment, or, or just generally speaking, the four of them being willing to do this job. Um, is this more of a commentary on how brutal life is and how it forces you into these circumstances, or is it more a a lack of responsibility for your life will only lead you to drastic measure, measures such as this? Perhaps a bit of a both. A bit of both. I mean, I think uh, I don't know what opportunities they were looking for. We obviously caught what was the most significant opportunity for them. And it seemed to have a little bit of both um, men finding their limits, wanting to prove to other men, you, uh -huh. just, uh, you know, and uh, so that what, you know, certainly adrenalizes this movie because, mm. you know, you're, you're portraying what the one lone female speaking part is now, you know, a little dog next to her master uh, getting kicked or slapped and um, really diminished in the early part of this movie. And then. Yeah, just these men, men on the edge, just uh, dogs, you know. Perhaps uh, we were asking maybe what the purpose of the Linda character even was. And perhaps, I mean, there was plenty of scenes of Mario sort of ignoring her or berating her 
even though she clearly had unconditional sort of love for him for whatever reason, perhaps the idea there is that, you know, all these men have sort of noble ideas of who they are, especially like Joe. He walks into town as if he's like a multimillionaire and he's got zero fucking dollars in his wallet. And so they all have these fantastical ideas of who their character is. You know, they have one nice suit and wear it every day so they can maintain their status in the town. And it's like perhaps the purpose of the Linda character is to sort of further explore that these men ignore the value of their current lives for the potential of this mythical idealized life that is really just a fantasy that they have in their head but really if they were just to stop and smell the roses they're in a they're in a town of nice people who just want to dance next to a jukebox and have a good time and this girl loves you and like so be careful not to ignore what's right in front of you for the pursuit of something that might blow you to pieces i, I suppose is is an idea <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> an idea Solid we share. Hey, is Mario and Luigi based off this film? Because we had a Mario and a Luigi. Uh, no, it is not. I figured you would ask that. I figured you would ask that. Chris would know. It's uh, not? It is not. Mario. How do you know they never saw this movie? Because I they they look I looked it up. Okay. So the the character of Mario is actually based off of uh Nintendo America's uh landlord, whose name is Mario. Piscali, I think, but he was an actual Italian-American who just happened to be the landlord of the Nintendo building, and they, they paid homage to him because when they were late on rent, he's like, don't worry about it, and then they posit, Mario. They posit that Mario and Luigi was actually based off of Mario and Luigi's Pizza in Redmond, Washington, where the offices were, and the word Luigi, there is a Japanese word, Ruigi, which means similar, because Luigi was just a palette swap of Mario. Uh-huh. So all these theories, but the truth has finally been revealed. Wages <laughs> of fear is the origins of Nintendo's Mario oh and Luigi. God. That's the mask uh, when you upload this to YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> That's the clip. Do you think those, uh, those shots of, I mean, those fires were real, right? Oh, yeah. Those were enormous fires. I took appreciation just in that, like what kind of special effects, how, what did they have to go through to get those blazing, pluming fires coming out? Honestly, they probably lit up an oil derrick. Yeah. yeah. Probably. It was, it was towering. It was huge. Yeah, was... Like that shot of him like walking in front of it, amazing. Yeah, that was really nice. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, even just the truck falling off the cliff, like oh. very, pra very practical, real, uh, shots in this film that that yeah. were really cool i mean I, I they only obviously only had one take to do that truck and the way it fell was really cool it was like a very sort of long rolling odd fall um any uh closing remarks from you guys i will say that uh a little foreshadowing for our next film and conversation lots of conversations in cars and vehicles yeah. this month yes. yeah uh which is sort of just a, a way to just simplify cinema and focus on the dialogue, which we got a lot of this month. Um, really excited to see Diabolic, uh, which is also in our catalog from the same director. Mm -hmm. Any closing remarks from you guys? I'm looking at the box office. It said it only made $1,100. No, this was a huge hit in France. Massive okay. hit. Yeah. This was this was his first his first hit actually. It says worldwide gross. Is that adjusted for inflation though? 
Probably not. Well, even if it was, that's nothing, right? Eleven hundred dollars for nineteen fifty-three. Eleven hundred dollars. That's one thousand dollars and one hundred one thousand one hundred dollars. I wonder how much they spent on this movie. Oh, I'm thinking eleven thousand. Thousand, right? No, this was one thousand ninety-eight dollars worldwide gross. I don't know if that's accurate or how much money they put into this film. I don't believe that at all. We'll have to look into that because I, I saw on, on a little Criterion documentary about it that uh, it was a massive hit in Paris and yeah. in, in France. <coughs> in fact, um, our man Clouseau was a big fan of uh, Dreyer, uh, the director of Vampire. Um, the, they, they were seen in, in, a, in a shot together in, a, in the documentary I watched, so that was interesting. But Christopher? Yes? Do you have something to show us? I have something, my friend. Thinking of ending. I'm thinking of ending things. 2020, Charlie Kaufman, USA. Oh. 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 <laughs> uh. They're pretty, but I don't see how it's supposed to make me feel something. If there's not a person in them feeling something if there's not a person in them feeling sad or joyous <laughs> well oh. maybe think of yourself as the person walking out of the scene you might have to see me in them <laughs> interesting oh. choice for a clip chris that was yeah that's a, a funny moment it is uh, i'm we're going to expand upon this but this is i'm thinking of ending things by charlie kaufman it tells a story of i think her name's lucy uh, only in the book. In this film, she's not Many. a name. Not named. Anyway, the, a, a girl and her boyfriend, Jake, are traveling north uh, to Fishkill, New York, as I found through my research, up from New York City, uh, to visit Jake's parents on a snowy, blistery day when uh, the woman, as she's known, uh, begins to have second thoughts, and she thinks about ending things with Jake. Uh, and as she goes and goes into his hometown, there are a lot of strange and almost supernatural things that happen to them, uh, describing the relationship and what could have or what might or what may have been as it kind of disjoints uh, time, space and meaning. Uh, this is, I think I'm in, thinking of ending things. 9.5. Holy shit. Wow, Masterpiece Paul. City. Greatest of all time? Yeah. Wow. I'm going, out I'm going out on a tree limb. Wow. It's his favorite film so it's far. It's my favorite film so far. Wow. wow. Jesse Buckley. Jesse I Buckley. thought Brie Larson was in this movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jesse Buckley. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to see Buck- your entire the canon actress. of work before the month is out. Yeah, we will absolutely get into that. Aaron, what did you give it? Kaboom. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. That well, is interesting. Okay. Sorry, Charlie. <laughs> sorry, Charlie. Well, uh, I gave it a, a 9.3. Wow. From a. There you Unbelievable go. masterpiece. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to talk about this. Yeah. Um, I'm going to get close oh. to my microphone. I, I, yes. I, I want to listen to myself throughout this entire broadcast. Yes. Sorry, Chris. Yes. Well, <laughs> well, folks, let me round it out with an 8.2. Okay. Okay, so so Chris and Aaron are a bit closer, and me and Paul are a bit closer. Interesting. Well, this will be an interesting score. I'm going to guess it's going to be about 
Eight. That's my guess. Eight point eight. I think the nine points the nine point five is gonna do a lot for it. Good. Uh, As it should. Uh, Fucking seven point seven. Uh, seven point seven. <laughs> that is an I eight point seven. I shouldn't have to look at eight point seven. 8.7. There you go. What'd you say, Aaron? I shouldn't have to look at reviews to try to understand the movie. Oh, oh come on. Just Aaron, look, Aaron, look. Aaron, that is the most disgusting shit I've ever heard coming you out. You are a smart man, Aaron, man, and I can't you, believe that came out of your you mouth. You shouldn't have to look at reviews. Yeah, you oh, shouldn't, but, no, but you maybe think like about the, it. That's how much I didn't like the movie. It's like oh. I, I literally had to find someone to try to explain it to me because i was like i just don't get it so you just don't like things you don't understand and, and you don't like things that are not easy that's 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 clearly what we're coming <laughs> that's not what i'm oh saying oh my god clearly, we've reviewed like 25 films i'm not just like wanting <laughs> spoon-fed information cinema um, yeah well i mean no I, I mean i'm obviously teasing you we'll get into why we did or did not like the film chris i would like to start the conversation off with an interview about a minute-long clip from an interview of Charlie Kaufman. Um, I think it'll be a great jumping point for us to start this conversation with regards to what he's talking about. And there is also this sort of thing that critics do, um, some critics do, and some people do, um, where they rank things, you know, where they're like, he does a lot, you know, and it's something that I've, I've taken issue with um, in my personal life with you know, people who do that. I just, I find that to be a bizarre and aggressive and long-headed way to look at a, a piece of work. I mean, you know, it moves you, it doesn't move you. Why do you need to compare it to some other piece of work, you know? I mean, if, you, if you're comparing it to express something about it or express something about the other work, that's fine, but to sort of like put a list together, it, it feels like you're, it feels like you're like, you know, like it feels aggressive or show off you or, or something to me. Well, and it's an inherently subjective hierarchy, right? Like, yeah. Jesus. Well, you say, let's all have a little bit of a reaction there. You said, Jesus, Chris, what are your thoughts on what Charlie had to say about what we're doing here? <laughs> Welcome to Cinemania. Or no. Welcome to Cinemania first, Charlie. <laughs> Cinemania. Uh, what show Cinemania is that? 1. I've never yeah, heard no, of that. Maybe 1.0. <laughs> oh, gosh. No, that was, that was 2.0. Uh, Dead oh, Cinema what? Society, welcome, welcome to the show, Charlie. Thank you. What, but really, what do you guys think of, of what he said? I have my thoughts, but um, what, do you, what do you guys think? That is uh, yeah, I mean, is it, is it too reductive? I mean, I, I, did, I don't know how long that interview played out. Uh, he got a few things off his chest. I don't uh, disagree with him. Mm -hmm. um, I don't disagree with him. Probably a numerical system is, uh, <laughs> misses a lot of things, especially you know, the four of us have, have had uh, different interpretations of our numbers. Um, uh, and we have debated behind the scenes for the benefit of people watching. You know, we, it's like trying to come up with a rubric, as, as Aaron has pointed out. Like, you know, what are we looking for? Well, I want to see technical aspects. I want to see this. Yeah, I, I, again, if there's more, I'm sure there's more to that interview uh, with the Chicago Humanities Festival. But, yeah, probably too reductive for him. Hey, I have no problem with that. Um, so, yeah, okay. I, I, I have no problem with it either. I think everything he said is pretty true. Mm -hmm. um, and relatively eye-opening but I do think that ultimately what we're doing here isn't as simple as just being aggressive uh, about you know hating each other's rankings right. and 
and, and being aggressive about uh, judging art. I mean, really, this is a, at the end of the day, this is really an excuse for four people to just talk about life and ideas and explore cinema. So I think he, if he was to see our show, which I think he will once we post this conversation, um, uh, because he's known to be an internet freak, but, um, but I think he might appreciate or make, make, make a, uh, what's the word? Exception? An exception, mm-hmm. uh, because ultimately the idea here is that we're, we're trying to just talk about, about films. And maybe, maybe, maybe everything is subjective in art, and, and uh, there's no objectivity to it. But there's also something fun about talking shit, Charlie. So lighten up yeah. a little bit, my friend. Yeah. Hey, I did go ahead and buy your book, buddy. So, uh, <laughs> where, uh-oh. Ant kind. Although, although that looks like the end of the wages of fear, though. That's great. Bible. <laughs> <laughs> you can't see it. Oh God! It doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Hold on. Hold on. Let me do this. Oh, Charlie, there I we go. go ahead and buy your first ever novel, yes. Ant yes. kind. Ant kind. And yes. I'm very much looking forward to reading it. And um, so I love you, Charlie. In fact, if you go to our blog on our website, you will see that I did a my top five directors who are currently working and Charlie's in there. Um, he is absolutely one of my favorite working directors. So I understand what you're saying, man. And obviously we had a little example of our aggression right before that clip where I was giving Aaron shit for giving this film a 7.7. But at the end of the day, if Aaron and I are having a conversation when these cameras are off, I don't care that he doesn't like a movie that I like. It's all in jest. It's all in fun. And it's all for the purpose of us figuring out what makes, we, what makes each other tick. Why do you like a movie? Why do you not like a movie? And we're just exploring ideas here. So, Charlie, I'll give you a back massage, and I'll read your novel to you, and we'll all be friends. Um, so an 8.6, was it, Chris? 8.2. 8.2 was the final score? Oh, 8.7 was the final yeah. score. 8.2 was 8.7. the score. Okay, so this is our champion, uh, our, our running champion. In case I didn't fill our f- audience in, the way we're doing it now is our champion will be crowned after every other show. So the running champion for this show is I'm Thinking of Anythings, and next, in two weeks, we'll watch three more films, and uh, it'll go up against whichever sh- uh, movie wins that one. So, uh, Paul, I'd like to start with you. Uh, Paul watched this film twice, or did twice. you end up twice? And... And he went ahead and read the book. Read the book. And it wow. was all because, for the benefit of our viewers, I panned being John Malkovich. And uh, you, can, you can see that uh, on YouTube. Um, and I've, being, you know, being John Malkovich, I'd seen before, and, I just, uh, and then revisiting it, I was like, there was a reason I didn't like this. Oh, yeah, I really don't like this movie. I was ready to hate this movie. This is a movie that Yoshi has been trumping for some time. And I'm like, I can't, we got to do, we got to watch this movie. I'm like, oh, God. But this was, uh, for me, uh, I was spellbound uh, from start to finish. Uh, And forget all the top four actors that are in there. Just the usage of one of my favorite character actors from the late 80s and 90s, Guy Boyd, who will find his way into every thriller back in that time always played a detective always played like a trusted confidant and to see him 
obviously in his 80s glory, you know, um, showing off his uh, nude body for us. I was like, wow, you've come a long way. Really happy for him because he was truly one of my favorite actors. And it's just great to see that he's still working. That mixed this with is, just... talking about the father? The, the, uh, the janitor, janitor. The janitor, pardon me. Oh, okay. Yeah, I should have been a little more clear. But yeah, no, this was... Uh, I thought this was a movie that Charlie Kaufman... Well, he adapted... I, I thought this was like one of those written and directed by Charlie Kaufman, but adapting this novel, um, I was... Yeah, I was just absolutely hooked. Uh, we talked earlier about pacing, and I, I loved it from the jump. I loved... Uh, in fact, I had to go back and rewatch it because I said, what just happened up in the, uh, the you know, that, that room with a view as we're looking down on the two characters about to, you know, shuttle off in, on their road trip to the parents' house. I was like, oh, yep, I think I, uh, yep, I saw what I saw. Great. Um, yeah, this. I'm getting a lot of back, background noise from one of you. I'm not oh, sure. It's Angel. It's Angel. Oh, no worries. No worries. Yeah, it's all good. She's, uh, you know, gets hungry. Um. Yeah, so let me uh, yeah let me focus my conversation a little bit. The uh, the performances across the board were terrific. Uh, the Jesse Plemons. Jesse Plemons. Um, or is that his name? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, his name was Jesse in the movie too, so I got confused for a second. I was like, wait a his minute. His name was Jake <laughs> in the movie. Jake. Oh, okay. Jake. Yeah. Yeah, and. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the the writing, how we interpreted the book uh, from, I don't know if it's Ian Reed or Ian Reed. Um, how close were they, Paul? They, they're not very close. What's interesting is oh. I, what, what grabbed me, and to Aaron's point, uh, the one piece that I said, I promised myself I'm not going to go looking for a review. I haven't read a review on this movie, but the one piece that was of interest to me, and I don't even know how I searched for it, was Char I just put the two names in, Charlie Kaufman, Ian Reed, and I said, okay, great. And Ian Reed, when he when he was approached by Charlie Kaufman to bring his you know movie to life, Ian Reed was like, "Oh, this is great! I can't wait to see what he does with this." And what he does with this is just uh, it's like a writer's paradise. I mean, he really had a lot of fun with it. And it's funny the very the very words he uses in his interview at the Chicago Humanities Festival. You could certainly apply here. I mean, I thought it was just uh, beautifully show offy with uh, our our. Um, you know, Miss Buckley interpreting uh, um, whether it was Gina Rollins or Pauline Kael. Um, Chagans! Oh, Chagans! It was a total Chagans amazing. Oh, it was so good. I was like spellbound and she put the cigarette to her <laughs> lips and I was like, and then the voice changed and it was just, it brought me back to the bedroom and that usual suspects moment and I was like, oh, this is so great. I, for, I those just, of a, for those watching who don't know what we're referencing, uh, a Woman Under the Influence is a uh, a movie by John Cassavetes, an indie film, that we have previously reviewed on this show, uh, and we had a really lengthy, uh, great conversation about that movie. And then, of course, the reference appears in this film when they are in the car, and um, our our woman character, uh, young woman, I believe she's credited as, uh, <coughs> attempts or not attempts starts to go into a monologue of a famous review of A Woman Under the Influence. Um, and so that moment was really special for me. I was, I was freaking out because she was imitating her, doing all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And they started talking about the movie, and, uh, man, that was awesome. Yeah, it was great. I mean, I uh, – yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I really – 
Yeah, this one really affected me. Uh, I was just deeply motivated after the first viewing. I went Same. back and watched, uh, you know, sped through to moments that uh, I was a little confused by, but then realized that I could just come up with, you know, my thought on what the movie was. And it just, you know, uh, and then I had to read the book. And I was like, okay, I just, and the, the book, interestingly, is positioned as sort of a psychological thriller, which the author said, and I didn't really think of it as that. Um, I and I, to me it was. Uh, I then had to go. I had to go look up literary genres again because to me this was like a. Uh, yeah, this was like a narrative history, and I was just like you know one person's life and just a reflection, um, and it was, uh, it was great. So so let's get into that. I mean, there's a lot to unpack here, um, but since you brought it up and since we kind of opened the conversation about what it's about and Aaron having to look into that. Let's maybe try to unpack what we all think it's about because it's not entirely obvious what it's about. Um, for me, it was kind of straightforward, but uh, I can see there being many, uh, many interpretations of what, what it's really about. I mean, I had a conversation with uh, our, our mutual friend Mike. I was on his podcast a few days ago, and after the show was over, he talked about how he was going to watch our show and how he, really, how he watched that film because I told him to. And one of the things he brought up was how uncomfortable it was viewing it to the point where he was pacing back and forth in his living room while watching it. He, did, he went on to uh, reveal that there were some personal relations uh, about it, where, where the scene where uh, Jesse or Jake, sorry, is sort of getting upset with his mother for not saying genius correct and so basically the idea is there it's like that overbearing mother who's like coddling her child too much and creates this uncomfort between the, the son and the mother. Um, so, so I can understand that maybe this film was very tension driving and some people would be uncomfortable watching it. Uh, Aaron, <laughs> since you don't, know what, you don't know what you think the film was about, can you maybe uh, tell us what you think it might be about or what your I mean 7.7 is not terrible there was clearly some things you liked oh about. yeah I mean it had variants of good variants of like I enjoy this I don't it's more I need to go into like the things that I didn't like I think to start to unpack the the polarizing view here because I think a lot of audiences out there it is a very polarizing film it's not like one of those where like everyone comes to it saying it's a masterpiece. I think it hits half of the audience that way. And then the other half, it's just like, what is going on? Um, you know, towards the end of this film, I really wanted it to take a, a twist, you know, like some kind of twist where we're going into maybe he is a killer, you know, maybe he brought this girl here. You see all the shakes in the trash can. Maybe that's his thing. He brings women there. And Isn't that such a simple, like, redundant? No, 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 because when it took that turn, when I saw the, the cups in the trash can, I was like, oh, man, this film's about to go off. <laughs> and I got really excited, and then it just never met up to that expectation. And I was just like, this was interesting. Now, the dance, the, the dance scene in the school, that. beautiful. Um, what do you guys think that's about? The death of the superego. Whoa. Because that was, so I'm going to go, I don't, if you want to make a point before I start, Aaron, go right ahead because I'm going to oh, no, talk I don't for like two minutes. Guys, we got, we got plenty of time. This is our okay. last film. As things come up, let's try to unpack them. Oh, my God. We'll try our best to stay organized here. Sure. We all have plenty to say. So go ahead, Chris. 
Wow. So first off, this movie was like just a lot of like Kaufman just being like, I'm such a good writer. Oh, <laughs> yes. Oh, well, good adapter in this case. Good adapter. Oh, let's talk about Tolstoy in this scene. Oh, let's talk about literary theory. Oh, let's okay. talk about this movie. Again, keep hold. Everyone hold your thoughts when I interrupt. Oh, Paul, you read the book and watched the film. Is that the is that the novelist or is that Kaufman? That, that's Kaufman. So he's okay. right. It's all okay. good. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah. And it was just like so the entire the entire thing for me was Jake accepting who he is, and feel free to jump in and disagree with me. I don't really care. So can we all agree that Jake is the janitor? Yes. 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 Aaron, Aaron, did you place that, Aaron, or not so much? Yes. Yes, I placed it. Okay. So Jake is the janitor. Go on. Jake is the janitor, and his entire existence is I'm smart, but the world didn't give me what I should have had. Yeah. So ah, because, that's good. Because good. The, sh- the woman in this film is not real. Correct. She is a figment of his imagination. That's mm-hmm. why she can't even remember her name, or she doesn't even right. have a name, because, because he she, can't give her a name. And she's sort of all these fantastical ideas of who he could have been, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's why she's, she's a poet. Yeah. A philanthropist or whatever the fuck. A physicist. No, she's, physicist. Yeah. physicist. She's not fully realized. So yes. this is the thing. It's this this is that is the word vacuous. It's that moment where you realize we have this as a viewer, you're watching a beautifully interpreted character through Jesse Buckley, but we realize that as the writer, as uh, you know, as our janitor is looking like you go, oh, she's not fully realized in yeah. his mind, which begs the question, did he ever have a relationship, like a solid relationship with another human being? To, uh-huh. you know, be, so it's like, right. Oh, you know, um, no, because he's just living potentially in his head. Right. And, 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 and more proof that she's not real is, is, uh, or that maybe some help me unpack this, I guess mm-hmm. the dad never makes eye contact with Jake, only with right. her. Right. And, and he's sort of mesmerized by her, so maybe yeah. he's kind of mesmerized by this idyllic version of Jake. Uh, and then there's that moment where they're in front of the, the, the photo, and she's like, is that me? Mm-hmm. So there's all these little things, little mm-hmm. clues that they're the same person. Yeah. And the, the bed scene where he comes in and you, you first get the, the time dilation of everything uh, is like, not much fucking on that bed. I- <laughs> It's not made for fucking, and you're like, Jesus Christ, old guy. Oh, oh that, that was, was so rich. So that was so rich. But, like, and the way he, like, kind of eases it back in every, like, few seconds. Yeah. Like, not going to be fucking on that bed. That's a child's bed. You're like, okay, guy. Yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> but, Aaron, I, I want to get your opinion on this. What was the dance scene for you? Mm-hmm. Um... You know, that's the problem is this movie left me so disjointed that I felt like I was behind the movie the whole time, you know, and perhaps the second viewing, maybe it's like, oh, yeah, now I get it because I know what this is about. But as a first watch, it just felt like I was behind the movie the whole time. And I just was like, man, this is not this is so sporadic. This is random, you know. Well, uh, it's very stream of conscious style which most of Kaufman's writings are I mean I can't remember did you like being John Malkovich Aaron I did yeah I enjoyed it okay ironically both those films have the exact same score from our from our mean average rankings uh, mm-hmm. yeah uh, yeah I understand 
I maybe understand that. I didn't have that experience whatsoever. Chris, to answer your question, I felt like the dance was sort of the idyllic dance of life that he yeah. wished to have had that was eventually crushed by reality in the stabbing of the uh, of his older self. So his his older true self, the janitor, comes and crushes this idyllic version of life that he's yeah. fantasizing about because he fantasizes for this mm. romantic life like that's that's why we have the movie within the movie as well where it's like this ideal idealized version of reality uh who is the director that they use <laughs> this is yeah so they have a very simple dialogue in this movie within the movie they're like yeah. it's like a classic diner it's like how life goes in Hollywood, right? That's how love happens. Oh, like, you got me fired, but you love me? I do. Well, shucks, you know, it's like so, like, cliche and, 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 and off. And so that for me, that dance was, again, going off that movie within the movie where we're inside this man's head. He's in his truck still. He never came back into the school. He's in his truck. And he's sort of hallucinating. That's where we get the mm. animation with the pig. Yes. And he's sort of getting all these flashes from his childhood, which you could say is what happens when you die. Potentially, people have talked about that. In the moment of death, you sort of have this photo book remembrance of your life chapter by chapter. And maybe you think of all your regrets and your feelings. Or maybe memory is weird and you don't know what's real or fake anymore. You look back at your life and it's, your memories are mixed with fantasies and with actualities. And so for me, that dance was just that sort of final moment of him clinging on to this fantasy he had of falling in love and being with someone, which maybe this character never had. And what a great like metaphor, like visual metaphor, to have all the people in his life in the audience of his show because he was a janitor. He never got to go and be the center of a show. But yeah. they're all in the idealized version of how he remembers them as young, as beautiful, but with old people makeup. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah. Amazing. I thought yeah, that what, was like the one, like, wow, that's a deep cut. I like that one. Why do they have old people makeup? Just because it's like, oh, every, maybe everyone's dead in that? Correct. Well, I think that was the beautiful mind thing. Because I, I had to, you know, going back and looking at his bookshelf, you know, right above Pauline Kale is the, you know, the Dymo labeler. And then there's the, uh, there's the, the beautiful mind thing, which I think is what he was trying to capture in that, the sort of goodbye with the audience. Because it, I never understood if in Beautiful Mind the age the age makeup looked unusually heavy on the actors, and I was like, and so I don't know if Kaufman took it a little like one step further here. Um, or so beautiful, you know, Beautiful or, Mind, the yeah. film with Russell Crowe. Mm -hmm, right. Yeah. So I guess we're getting all these clues that it, like uh, that people are informed by their consumption of pop culture right mm -hmm. and so and then that sort of gets twisted into their ideas of of how you're supposed to live life oh kind of yeah i think just for purposes of this little construct these you know the four images of us and how for my generation for example the importance of a pauline kale review that was that was the principal reason for many years why you got the New Yorker and how she was a leading voice uh, to interpret cinema. And she interpreted it with just such a pleasant grandiloquence that was so enviably good. You were like, I'm going to incorporate that into my daily diction and my speak and everything. And, and, and so it's like 
that book and how thick that book is and how it's like he is playing out this movie and it is perhaps through the lens of a Pauline Kale review and it's like that is one of the thicker books that he's got in his bedroom and I went oh he had a because you know being show-offy Kaufman has read every one of her reviews he has his New Yorker subscription and he just and he's probably got them all memory and the because that that in that review of of um uh, woman under the influence is is just perfect. That's like a perfect, you know, like you can see Kaufman going, I've got this one. Uh, that she's remember that scene where she blows the raspberries. This is going to be great. And I'm going to throw it into the movie, and it just works. Is that review of woman under the influence from her or Kaufman? Yeah, Ka from well, from Pauline Kale to Kaufman. It's Pauline Kale's review of a woman under the influence. Okay, it is and, right. And then what I don't know is whether it's spoken as Jesse Buckley is now. Gina Rollins commenting on on her own movie, or if it's Pauline Kael commenting on her own movie, I couldn't remember. And if you go back to Women on the Influence, but she had the cigarette in her hand, I thought you know, because there are moments where she's Gina Rollins, and then I didn't know if in that moment, as her voice, you know, the timbre of her voice changes just slightly, and you're like, is she Gina Rollins or is she Pauline Kael? Because I don't. Maybe I heard Pauline Kael speak once. You know, and this is where the genius of the film comes into play for me because. We're throughout most of the film. We're just in a man's fantasies, mm -hmm. and that's mm -hmm. why we're getting this. Maybe that's why it was difficult for Aaron to watch because maybe you didn't really get that part of it, and and, and I can understand that because it's sort of jumping. Well, it felt like a horror, a horror movie or something, you know, coming out like, you know, there was that tension. Was the, yes. You see, Aaron's kind of right. I mean, that's the thing. The 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 book was for some reason positioned as exactly what Aaron's talking about. Like, because there's a whole chapter where we're having this. You know, uh, all work and no play makes makes Jack a dull boy in the book, and you're like, it is like a twelve pages of the same sentence. Somebody is at the end of his reality, mm. and then you're like, oh, well, like how creepy is it? You know, the basement and everything. It's like they're setting us up for this suspense. Like there's mm -hmm. something down there, and all these elements of the house where it's you know, uh, the pig. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean it's scary. I don't. It just it didn't really. I don't know. This this film just rubbed me wrong. I'm I'm gonna be honest. I didn't like the uh, Tony Collette and David, the mother what? and father. It didn't. I didn't like them as the oh. the actors in there. Oh, they were so amazing. And I that's a common insertion. Yeah. For yeah. me, the mother was overacting. Like I just saw in. That's the point. That's the point. But I don't. These are memories. These aren't real people. So you're taking the worst elements of these yes. people because he didn't have a good childhood, and so he's just he's he's creating monsters in his head because of these people who maybe traumatized him in the past. And that's yeah. fine. But I want to see like a a more natural performance from the parents. And I. And that's it, not what she, she's capable. Of. I mean, we know fair. you've seen her body. Yeah, I mean, she is she can execute that flawlessly. And I think as the old doddering mother withering away with food on her face, she captured an as like, like, I thought that was a beautifully nuanced moment. She is capturing her very best interpretation of someone interpreting her as the dying mother. Yes. Like difficult. through the eyes of her son. And I'm going, holy shit, Tony yes. Poet. Really good. That's pretty good. That you know, that's you? that's that's what I saw. Again, yeah. I knowing that's that's exactly you know, right. You know. That's how I saw it as well. And and, and that, that's why we can't take these things for face value because this isn't reality. This is not reality. This whole thing is a man dying. Yeah. He's in his truck and he's dying. <laughs> giving up on life. Uh, and he's 
thinking back. Yes. And so, and so uh, our woman character, like Chris pointed out, is like sort of him, and as Paul pointed out, him remembering all these things he knows and using pop culture and, and pretending to be these things. I mean, how many times have I been in the shower and I've been singing to myself and I've been pretending I'm on a stage at a concert in front of a bunch of people and I'm this rock star? I mean, I do that shit all the time. There's a Can't part of me who wants to be a rock star. That's not my life. But maybe when you're an old man and you don't actually follow anything through, through for the, your whole life and you resort to being a janitor and you let the trauma of your life take hold of you, then that's what you do in your dying days. You think of all these things you could have been. You think of all the film reviews you read and you pretend to be these people who had opinions that mattered. But really, you never really found a stage to perform on. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's why, Aaron, give yourself permission that full garbage can, I mean, like, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm in my moment, I, I probably, you know, this is me talking, I would probably give myself permission to go back to Tulsi Town and have my way with those two girls. <laughs> and maybe those two girls get dragged into my, and before I exit the world, I'm going to, they're going to be two cups and two french fries and two, you know, disposable bags and that because I'm taking care of them. That, oh my God. like, it's, it's like, that's, you know, if I'm going to reinterpret okay. my life and, yes, Oh, let me, well, let what me is, have this what fascination. What is the whole Tulsi Town uh, scene about? Why are there the two girls? Why is there the, the one girl that's, like, all depressed and she, her arms are all, like, you know, bruised and abused? Because like, that was the was one that? girl who saw him. So, it, yeah, was, saw him. it was a self-insertion. Yeah, so, you know, because you, when he, when that janitor's first introduced, he's, you know, the people are making, the girl, you know, the students are making fun of him as he walks by. So in his world, that's what I thought was so genius. He has this, you know, whatever, deus ex machina, there's a moment where we have the same person who is helping everybody, like, you know, I, I don't feel, I feel bad for you. And the fact is, we've got the, what, the lead from Oklahoma and what, the second lead from Oklahoma are there just, you know. With their mm -hmm. Oklahoma makeup ready to like whatever you want to do to me, but uh, we well, have perhaps, this voice of reason. Aren't those girls like Hold looking on. at him and like, like giving him? Yeah, and he still can't. He still can't in his own mind just go. Ah, you know. No, perhaps that moment from Wages of Fear comes into play right here, where we talked <sighs> about how in Wages of Fear, maybe these men don't realize what's right around them because mm -hmm. they're stuck fantasizing about what they could be mm -hmm. perhaps there's a moment here when they go to the ice cream place right. because like paul said the only girl who noticed him was this girl who wasn't ideally beautiful okay she had some problems but she was actually willing to love this man but this man ignored her because he was focused on what he should he thought he should be <laughs> focusing on which was these two blondes who were making fun of him so he yeah. was more focused on the things that didn't matter than seeing the love that was right in front of him and now he's an old man looking back on this and regretting it mm -hmm. beautiful i just yeah. realized yeah. that right now hearing you get having you guys bring that up and the the idealism of the woman and and the jingle of how he enters into assumedly the afterlife is the Tulsi Town jingle. Yeah. Oh. I mean, Aaron, you're just shaking your head. I mean, you're really that upset with this, huh? I just don't think it was executed well. I think the story of what you're talking about is more exciting than what I saw. Yeah, because because you're looking for reality, my friend. You're looking oh, for something. Oh, no, I'm looking for it to be executed correctly. And how do you execute how do you how, how would you execute the subconscious? How would you execute a man dying and thinking back on I've his seen, life? I've seen many movies where they do flashbacks in a proper way that feels fulfilling. I mean, I'm I'm rewatching Lost. 
It is the masterpiece of flashbacks, let me tell you. And going from those kind of flashbacks to whatever disjointed version of this that happened, like I don't, I didn't like this. I didn't this enjoy is, this. This is where you and I always clash, my friend. I mean, I love you. You know that. And we always admit that we clash. And that's fine. Nobody's right or wrong here. Let's get that shit out of the way. But this is my problem with how you view films. It's like you need everything to be wrapped in a box. Things can't be complicated. You need to know what reality is. Like some films like to stretch the imagination and stretch how we uh, understand a story. And that's what Kaufman is the best at, in my opinion. Yeah, Chris gets my vote for today because the the dis destruction of the super ego I think was spot on. That's pretty good. That's where well, I wanted that the ego voice. Some, I mean, I'm sure Kaufman had a lot of fun with this, and you know, when he comments, when he starts posting on our YouTube channel, we'll, we'll find out. We'll engage with him. Oh, he's gonna hate me because I'm so aggressive. He hates aggression. <laughs> you're you're show off. Oh, you're very show off. I'm very oh, show off. Yeah. Very. I'm sorry, Ca Charlie Kaufman, the writer of this film, where you fucking mentioned Tolstoy, uh, fucking woman under the influence, and like uh, okay, and yeah. other things. Yeah. You get your Wordsworth <laughs> with Wordsworth. Come on. Like, go that was fuck a, yourself. Like, I'm telling you, he's typing away, and he goes, you get your Wordsworth with Wordsworth. That yeah. right there, I went, oh. And then he wipes the semen off of his mustache. <laughs> of course. I don't care. I did that once. You know, I hooked the heels under the headboard. I tried to shoot in my face. You know, it was great. You know. Woohoo! Oh, my God. <laughs> List of questions that my next girlfriend has. Did you? Uh... Of course I did. Put a big check by that. If we have know. it on video now. Hoffman, <laughs> you, you aggressive motherfucker. How, could, oh, how dare you? Uh, look, I mean, I'll ease up, Aaron. I get it. It's not, it's not like a regular kind of movie, and I understand, you know, like. No, yeah, it just doesn't, it didn't tickle me. It didn't take me away to where you guys went, and that's just what. I, I would invite you to try this again at some point, because I think that you can like this movie. Yeah, I really do. Maybe I need a second viewing because especially now, especially after I this conversation, yeah, I think especially you, yeah. if you're the guy who likes Christopher Nolan. I mean, this is you know, I think this is right up your alley. You know what okay. the irony is going to be? You're going to get out of film school and you're you're going to get something. Uh, you're going to get an id ego super ego script, and you're going to go, oh, I remember this. And this, you're going to come back to this template, and you're going to go, okay, I'm going to have fun with it. I I I please watch it again. I mean, you, one of your favorite movies is Run Little Run. I mean, that's. That's a bit playing with time there. That's a, yeah, a little... but to me, while I'm watching that, it's like, aha. In this movie, I have no aha. I have to talk oh to my... you guys. Oh, oh, the movie was aha. Every was aha. No, but I'm telling yes. you my experience, which is yeah. my experience. It's the only way I, I know how to, to uh, interpret this. And for me, it's I didn't have an aha. So I had to go read about it online. Then I got to talk to you guys for 30 minutes. And now it's like, oh, I should revisit it. But now I know all about the film, and maybe it makes more sense. But what yeah. bothers me about this film is I didn't get an aha, so that's why it didn't get a, you know, it's not a masterpiece for me because I didn't aha on my first watch. To play devil's advocate, after a very quick cursory search on YouTube of I'm thinking of ending things explained, the top four videos that come up, which explain everything in the movie, have over a million views combined. <laughs> So, so people Aaron, watch this. People, I, people don't get it. People are. Yeah, no, I, that's okay. why I'm, I'm, I can't give you enough permission to just. I love the fact that you, what you said, like. But what's so? But, but is, allow yourself to just uh, 
come up with an interpretation. I think that's what I've gotten. We're now on DCS7, and that's what I've gotten out of you guys. That's how you, the three of you, have influenced me, where I can look at a movie and be comfortable in what I'm going to express, as long as I, you know, stand by what I, you know, yeah. what I mean. It's like, yes. that's what it's all about. But but to give exactly. me permission to interpret a movie a different way, I may rank something eights or nines, but I look at it a little differently, and then I'll come off of numbers, too. I just... Uh, I think this is right up your alley. I think you are a heady guy, Aaron, and I, yes, I, I see a script like this in your future with a brilliant cinematographer, and I just see you going to town. Well, you know? that's that's partially why I'm so emotionally responsive to Aaron, <laughs> to Aaron not liking it, because I, I want him to like it, because I know yeah. he will like it yeah, if he, he watches will. it in the right you know, perspective. And, and it's nothing about being right or wrong. That's why I wanted to start this conversation right. with that clip from, 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 um, from, from Coffin, because I know that this show is kind of setting us up to have these sort of back and forth banters and, and, and to, for me to potentially be aggressive or passionate. <laughs> I like to use the word passionate, but, um, that's good. but it's can. true. I mean, what Kaufman said is true. And that's why, you know, just because me, Chris and Paul were able to jack off with Charlie doesn't mean that we should have been jacking off with Charlie. Potentially it was just a jack off session and, and Aaron's right. And that's why I gave it an 8.2. 8.2, yeah. That's, oh, yeah, that's right. I forgot yeah. that you ranked yeah. it yeah. as low as you did. 8.2, yeah. so there's a yeah. reason for that. Maybe uh, Chris should mention why. Well, that was it, it was masturbatory. Like, it was literally oh. it, this character was like, I don't, I don't give a shit, man. Like, I, I understand that you think you're smart, but everything that he was saying was either he was either parroting something or literally stealing from a review. So, like, there were times where he was just like, oh, yeah, you know, Tolstoy says, and he, re he recites the poem. It's like, yeah. And then the, the girl in it was like, but didn't, you, didn't he actually mean this? I mean, I used, I still do this all the time where I'll say something with confidence, and it all Yoshi has to do is go, no, and then it completely falls apart. Like, it is, it is pseudo-intellectualism. It is yes. overconfidence, and it is just the most ridiculous shit. Like, I, but, I, I felt myself in the middle of this, like, who the fuck is this guy, and why are we following him? Like, but that's why I, it's that's, – that, that's exactly why it's not masturbatorial, because he's actually making fun of himself, mm -hmm. in a, in, if you're going to use that example. I mean, I, mean he, what he, I think what he's trying to say with all of that Tolstoy and referencing all these film reviewers and all these great poets and writers is that – you know, you can read as many books as you want and watch as many films as you want and read as many reviews as, and watch as many of those YouTube meeting videos as you want throughout your life, mm -hmm. but you need to make your own Yes. Opinion. You need yes. to think for yourself, yeah. not just repeat information right. and recycle shit like we're doing so much in our current culture. All these people are pretending like these are their own in, ingenious ideas that, that they're bringing up in these conversations with their friends. People are just recycling the information they read in the fucking news in the morning. I mean, it, that's, I think that's really what Kaufman is trying to bring up. I mean, yeah. you may be right on that. But at the same time, like, it, it's in, in, the, in, the, in the stasis of the movie, he is having this conversation with himself. So he can also call himself out on it. And whether it's that's the, the, just the narrative yeah. of the movie and the mechanics of how you have to discover what's happening. But, like... There were several points in the movie where I was just like, what the fuck's happening? Like, what was the thing with the pig? Like, it just woke up and had maggots one day. And, like, speaking as a person who lives in that area where, where it's set in Fishkill, New York, that doesn't happen. There's no, there's no disease where a pig will just have maggots growing in its stomach. But that's had the funkiness of memories, right? Yeah. 
but maybe and, and, maybe it's cancer yeah, then i don't know he comments on it. i think he comments but how, on how often do you how often do you uh try to tell your friend a story about from your childhood and you catch yourself and you're like you know wait is that how it went down well the mandela no, effect you, yeah what's it called the mandela effect that's what that is mm-hmm. where you sort of implant ideas into your memory that to fill in the gaps well, it's like the, the Bernstein Bears were actually the Berenstein Bears. And people were like, oh, no, it's always been the Bernstein Bears. Yes. And it, it was so ubiquitous yes. that they actually changed the name. Yes, and so that's the power. That's the yeah. the, the how uh, – I'm looking for a word here. Phallic? No, not phallic. Penis. Uh, penis. No, not, not penis. penis. <laughs> Wrong word. <laughs> uh, that's memories. Dick. Dick. Huh? Dick dick dick, 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 dick. Memories dick, are dick. <laughs> Anyways, um, uh, for, I just want to say two things, before, and then if anyone else has anything to add, uh, Tony Collette, seeing her in a house ever since Hereditary just freaks me out. Her in any house freaks me out now. Mm-hmm. I love her. And uh, Jesse Plemons, for me, is teetering on Philip Seymour Hoffman level. Oh, 100%. He's getting in, up there. In his way, 100%. If you need to see his early beginnings, Friday Night Lights, and watch his craft come alive and grow before your eyes, it's worth it. That man's on to some shit, man. Oh. Yeah. Uh, I, ha- I do have a quote here. See if anyone has any responses to it from the movie. Um, watch the world through this glass pre-interpreted for us. We become it like a virus. That was a line in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to find some context for the audience, but I can't really place why I wrote that down. But that is a cool line. Watch the world through this glass pre-interpreted for us. We become it like a virus. I think that that line might sum up the film. I don't really know how to articulate it, but there's something there. I think that's I think that's a more of a, a thing on what what disease he might have had and what what might have caused him to you know get hyperthermia or uh, whatever you might want to call it where he takes all his clothes off and goes into the into the snow. Uh, the pig might have been a, a kind of a checkoff gun to something that was growing within him that was killing him, which was causing him to kind of like lose grip on reality. And like a virus, it becomes you because as cells mature and get eaten by the virus, they become it and they spread it more. That's interesting. I think I think I I think I was kind of thinking more along the lines of like, you know, our current world has a virus, right? Mm-hmm. But is there a second virus that we can't see? Well, we can't see viruses at all. But is there a second virus that maybe is not so obvious that's also being spread right now? For example, a virus of a glass that we're all looking through that is pre-interpreted, like this quote says. And so for me, this film wraps up so nicely what we're currently going through, which is very ironic that he wrote this or that he made this right before this whole pandemic happened because do we believe the narratives that are being spewed to us? And why do we if we do? And I, I know I'm not trying to turn this into a, first of all, we're allowed to think. So don't, anytime yeah. someone questions things, that is not a conspiracy, okay? <laughs> that is not a conspiracy if you're just thinking and questioning things. But Hieronymus the idea is Yosh. that. Huh? Hieronymus Yosh. Hieronymus, Hieronymus Yosh. Yosh. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, are we really thinking for ourselves? 
And that's kind of what the movie is posing for me. Are we really thinking for ourselves or are we just watching something and the way we're going to think has been predetermined and there's sort of two viruses going on right now? Well, Heavy yeah, stuff. I think you're right. I mean, just reduce it to watching a movie. You come out of a movie like this and then you're looking to the other person like, oh, I loved it. Yeah, why did you like it? Oh, this, this. Oh, okay. But then you got to get home and, you know, get yourself involved in a review or find uh, somebody online who's seemingly smarter than you who's going to justify your interpretation, which now you feel comfortable with and now you can tell a loved one or a friend authoritatively, oh, yes, this is what I believe the movie was. I'm like, this one? I said, no. But you're right. To your point, I don't want to get too expansive here, but your point about... Um, yeah, I love I love your point. Like, it's not a conspiracy. You are allowed to think. I'm like, yes, that's exactly what we need to do in these times. We are yes. on our calendar right now. We are we need to think, and then we need to take action. It's funny that the movie talks about thoughts as a what a true action, and actions are not quite actions. I forget what his line was in the car, but uh, a thought is reality. So it's. Um, I forget the context, but yeah, I think you make a very good point. I'll just, uh, I'll say that. Guys, we did it. Yay! Yay. Yeah. Um, that was fun. Uh, current runner for champion is, I'm thinking of ending things. We are about to find out what three movies it'll be going up against in two weeks' time. Are you that was ready? a good conversation, guys. <clears throat> oh, hey Kaufman. Welcome back, Kaufman. <laughs> Welcome back. All right. Are you ready? Mm -hmm. Yes. Ooh. Wow. Diary of a Country Priest. Wow. Diary of a Country Priest. Where do you guys <laughs> find these films? Well, Yoshinal does. Yosh, this is probably a... Uh, this has got to be a French influence. It is. Yeah, the story like is set in Embricourt in northern France, where a young, yeah, newly appointed Catholic priest struggles with stomach pains and the lack of faith within his parish. The book was published in English in 1937 and then made into a movie shortly thereafter. Oh, I love it. Yeah, this the is Bresson. Oh, a country love it. Yep. <laughs> Back to Bresson, uh, guys. Yeah, like, this has got to be Bresson. <laughs> Can't wait. <clears throat> so uh, we watched a Brisson film, Mouchette, uh, oh. on our last show. So gotcha. we are revisiting the director. Hopefully uh, this film is not as pessimistic as Mouchette. <laughs> mm. uh. Diary of a Country Priest. Kind of a low-res image, but we got there. Very excited to see this. This was on Tarkovsky's list of top 10 best films of all time. All right. Yeah. I'm into it. <clears throat> Next. Fleabag season two in my favorite. <laughs> 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 I knew Scovero would be all over that. <laughs> ah! There we go. Yay. The master. We, get to, we actually just get to draft a third one because we got a, we got a oh, present movie. All right. The master. A naval this, veteran. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, mm -hmm. I was going to say, is this going to be anyone's first PTA film? Yes. Yours? Mm-hmm. Wow. Aaron, have you seen any Paul Thomas Anderson? Uh, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Well, either way, I'm very excited. It's one of my favorite directors of all time. Hit us. The Master. 
A naval veteran arrives home from war, unsettled and uncertain of his future, until he is tantalized by the cause and its charismatic leader. I, I haven't seen this. This is probably my first PTA film. Ah, uh, dude, he's... Again, on the, on the blog on our website, I, I put up my, my top five working directors, and I have him in the number one spot. I think he's, I think he's the greatest working director right now. Well, I've 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 done a scene from this movie in an acting class, but I've never oh, yeah? seen it. Yes. Who did you play, Philip? I played uh, I played Joaquin. Check out that poster, Aaron. Oh wow, that is that's sick. That's the Joker. So this is my personal. I've seen this film. There's not many seen, many films in our catalog that I've actually seen, but I've seen this one, and this is my favorite Joaquin performance. Uh, and the Philip performance is up there as well. All right, our final film. Mm -hmm. Ooh! Two, oh, 2012. Great. Oh, I love it, love it, love it. Celine and Julie go both. Yeah. We got two current movies. Is is this a familiar director that we've just recently seen as well? Oh. I think it was. About to find Julie out. Julie Goboding. Why is Go not capitalized? Because oh. I was typing it in fast. Give me a break. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and it's apparently a remake. Really? A remake? Apparently, I'm looking at all these old pictures. Oh, well, then we need to see the original. That's not. I didn't. I didn't put any remake in there. Oh. Yeah, 1974. You're good. Right? Oh, yeah, 1970. Yeah, maybe it's just a typo. Uh, that's what it says on the website, so maybe it's a typo then. Hmm. Anyway, uh, Celine funny. and Julie go boating. A mysteriously linked pair of young women find their daily lives preempted by a strange boudoir melodrama that plays itself out in a hallucinatory parallel reality. Mm -hmm. Nice. I like the word hallucinatory. That sounds fun. <laughs> uh, but just to clarify, this film is from 74, not 2012. Well, the yeah. catalog page on the website is wrong. Or I entered it wrong. No worries. Uh, I looked it up on IMDb. It's only 1974. Okay. okay. Let's I don't think there is a remake. Good. Well, this is... And I was wrong. We've, French. we've never seen this director before. Celine and Julie. It's in French. Okay. Jacques Celine and Julie vont in bateau. Jacques Rivette. Jacques Rivette. All right. What else has he done? Yeah, I don't... Oh, I have seen a film by him. The, um... The beautiful... Uh, Troublemaker? Yeah, La Belle Nos... Nos... Nothing. Um, actually, Aaron, um, the reason I saw that film... Uh-huh. Was because what? of your phone? <laughs> the reason I saw it is because it was one of Sal's rants in class. Oh, was it the beautiful? One time Sal Sal, our, our acting our, our acting teacher from back in the day, came used to come into class sometimes and just open the class by ranting about a film that we all need to see. Yeah. And he ranted about this one, which was essentially um a young model replacing his wife uh inspires a tired painter to pick up a work he quit 10 years before. And the whole film, literally the whole film, is just a painter 
painting a naked woman, like session after session after session. And it's this like arduous process to get it perfect. And then there's this kind of drama that plays out between him and, and the model where like it's sort of he's sort of testing it's almost like what a director does to an actor who overthinks or is too trained. Like he'll have them do a million takes just to beat the training out of him so that he's just being his essence rather than his personality kind of thing. Wow. And that's kind of what the film is about with the painter and the model. So, Wow. It was a good film. Really good. So I'm excited to see this one. Uh, guys, that was fun. We're getting back together in two weeks for my final Los Angeles show. Um, that'll be cool. And um, we got three interesting films. <laughs> nice. That was a good show, guys. You all were very, very sharp, so that was, that was fun. Yeah. yeah. It's a good time. All right. Shall we uh, freeze frame the audience out again? Yes. <laughs> Please go subscribe to our YouTube, Dead Cinema Society. Subscribe to our Instagram, Dead Cinema Society. And Shocker, our website, is also deadcinemasociety.com. Go check it out. And toodaloo. And we're out. <laughs> That's fun. <laughs>